This is episode one, Delta, of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, November 29th, 2011. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And uh, we've forgotten how difficult it is to be in two different locations when we record. This is why we started always trying to record in the same location with the same microphone. Yeah, I think Dan and Fab actually always record separately, don't they? Yeah, they do, but they I, they have more, but they have better equipment than we do. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely been an ordeal. So hopefully, um, hopefully Dan will will perform his magic and and this will be okay. Yeah, I think it will. I, I mean, we went we went through an ordeal so that you could have a good microphone on your end, and I have our usual microphone with me on my end. Um, our back channel does not sound so great, but I, I think everyone will hear us okay. I wonder if your laptop is plugged in though, because I hear a, an interesting audio buzz on your side. Um, but now my laptop is plugged in. Because yeah. it's the only way that I can record because my laptop battery has so been thoroughly fried. Yeah, I heard a, I heard a strange background noise for a while there, but then it went away. So I don't know what that was. Again, if it sounds okay, it's due to the magic of Dan Lynch okay. at halfbakemedia.com. <laughs> So uh, we actually have one leftover interview uh, from, uh, well, it's not leftover, but it was one remaining interview that we hadn't uh, put onto the show yet that uh, that we were able to, uh, or you were able to record at UDS. Is that correct? Yeah, it's actually not so, it's still not so old. It's just a couple of weeks old. Um, but I had the uh, the pleasure of, uh, of of doing an interview at UDS. It was great. This is the, you know, we did one other with um, with Adam Dingle from Yorba, and this was the other that I had done at UDS. So, do you want to just do you want to just play the interview and folks can hear it, or is that, is that what we should do next? Or is there anything interesting? Is there any? Do we need any setup for this clip, Karen? I don't know. I, I, I did you you listen to it? I think I did, right. Yeah. Was there anything? Anything you think that you would have been improved had you known in advance? Uh, no, I just was doing that thing they do on shows, where uh, or on interview shows. I say, do we need any setups for the clip that you brought today? Oh, right. <laughs> uh, not that I can think of. So this is an interview with uh, Stefano or, or uh, Zaccaroli, as I say his name right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Who's uh, I think so. <laughs> username is Zach uh, Z A C K. I'm sorry, Z A C K for our non-US listeners. That's right. Uh, Not Z A C H, um, which some people seem to think is the case. Well, and the, he corrected me. Yes, it's true. It's true. And the, and there's somebody on Identica with that username uh, who's also involved in free software. And so it can get confusing. So yeah, Z-A-C-K is the right, or Z-A-C-K. And this is an interview about, uh, actually about a lot of different topics. There's, I, you discuss Debian and lots of other different types of free software issues. So let's play that for everybody. And then we'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, the show afterwards, or the interview afterwards. Great. So I am here at UDS 
with Zach, with Stefano, who is the lead maintainer of Debian. It's actually, what is, what is the actual title? So the actual title is Debian Project Leader. DPL is the acronym. So hi, everybody. And um, I don't know, just to get started, can you maybe tell us how, um, how you got involved in free software to begin with? So as many people, I, I encountered a sort of a prophet in my university per, um, curriculum. So it was second year. I was I was studying computer science, um, operating systems, and the professor was a huge fan of uh, free software and taught us how cool it was to actually work as a student on something you can study. You can do whatever you want to, you want to with it. So that's why I got my first you know exposition to free software. What was your first free software contribution? Do you remember? Oh my! <laughs> Ooh, that's the, it's pro, no, I really don't remember. It's probably a bug report to Debian because the lab was using Debian everywhere. But no, I really don't remember that. That's funny. I don't. I don't I've never asked that question before, and I don't know that. Uh, it's really. A, I think it's a hard one to answer. Um, but so how? So that's how you got involved in, in Debian. Um, and you know, how did you get sort of more involved and in, and in, and get towards the position that you have today? So actually, back then, as a user, I started with I think the, the Red Hat. So a lot of us started with buying the Red Hat book, which came with a, a CD to install it on your computer. Then I think I I flirted a bit with Minix, so I installed Minix on my computer, and then actually I started using Debian a bit later. So was still university third or fourth year, and I started working on a research group for what has then become my master thesis, and we we were using OCaml as a programming language, and we were using the Debian machine of the lab. And the libraries we were needing were not available in, uh, in Debian, so I started doing the packaging. I started figuring out, okay, how can I do that? I started doing the packaging, offering that to Debian, and at some point someone who was in Debian told me, okay, why don't you become a Debian developer and do your work officially in the distribution? And then all followed up from there. So what's it like being DPL? <clears throat> is, it, is it fun? Uh, so I guess it depends which which kind of geek you are. So there are not many geek tasks in the sense of hacking. So essentially, I put on hold my hacking activities when I started doing that. And that was a really wise choice because you cannot do everything. But it, it, it is fun. So it is fun and at the point that you realize that you are helping other people in Debian having fun. So if you feel this sense of enabling others to have fun, then it's maybe it's not fun, but it's really re rewarding. That yes. Uh, I didn't expect it to be that much rewarding, actually. Would you do it again? Uh, I'm sorry, I totally put you on the spot. I just, it, it popped into my mind, and so I figured I'd ask. You mean if I, if I go back, if we, would I do it again? Uh, yes. Uh, no, I, I mean, I mean in future. Oh, no, the, that's not putting me on the spot. Everybody asks that. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> and the answer is, um, I don't think so. I mean, I've been very happy to doing that. It's, um, it's, it's been very rewarding. I've been doing that for a couple of years. Uh, I think I've done a lot, and it's time to do more. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, it just seems to take up a lot of time. I mean, I I know it, it there are a lot of positions, I think, in the free software world and not nonprofits generally, I think, and things that you care about where there are positions that you can take that are, you know, they have titles, so they're exciting in that regard. And they're, you know, you get a chance to really do a lot for something that you, you, you care for. But at the same time, it takes up so much time and a lot of that is things that you might not necessarily want to do otherwise. So you, you talked about putting your hacking on hold. And that's the kind of thing I think people don't really think about how much you have to give in order to do a position like that. I think this is why I've generally tried to avoid serving on boards of directors and things like that. I feel like if I'm going to be volunteering for something, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather just do whatever work it is that I, I want to do instead of, you know, instead of 
getting a title and then being, you know, sucked into to having to do the, the whole range of things. Is that sort of how you found it? Um, so, yes, partly yes. But I mean, part of the problem in Dublin is that the there is not much documentation about what the role of the DPL is about. I think many people step in to become a DPL because they, first of all, they, 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 they care about being the representative of the Debian project. They want to change things. But actually, a lot of the thing you end up doing is day-to-day activity, which is fundamental to keep the project alive and to avoid having bottlenecks. Because essentially everything is Debian, which is not, uh, well, not everything, but a lot of management tasks, which people don't even know exist, falls on the shoulder of the DPL. So you end up doing all this kind of stuff. And when you step in to do that, you are not really aware of what you're going to do. So this is something we need to fix in some way to be, you know, I think the people that nominate themselves should be more aware of what they are stepping in for. So that's part of the difficulty here. When is the term over? Um, it's in April, so we have a one-year term, and it's synchronized on, I think, mid-April, like 15 or 16 of April, something like that. Yeah, you know, I, I hadn't realized that it was just a one-year a one-year term. I guess some people in the past have done multiple years in a row. Uh, so the, the two years in a row is pretty common if you look at the common history. Uh, so that's that's pretty standard because one year is is quite short because you have to. I mean, you have to learn the job with all the quotes needed. You have to to get to know people because it's in good part it's a political role. So you have a lot of interaction with other people like I mean GNOME, other distribution. I mean, and you need you need to start having other people know you. So that takes some sort of uh, startup time. And you are really effective in what you're doing only after, I would say, three or four months. So the first year goes away pretty quickly. Yeah, I think a lot of projects have one-year terms for things like the GNOME board and other board positions are re-elected every one year every year but that's tough because by the time you figure out what you're what you're doing it's time to step down or re- get reelected or or something like that um, so what are some of the things that you're you know that you're happiest about over the the course of the I guess since April it's not not that long but um Okay, so, um, well, I've been doing that for, actually, this is my second term, so I've been doing that for one year and a half. Oh, okay. I, I, I think I knew that, which is why I was so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've been doing that for for, for a bit now. Right. And so this, one of the things I'm most happy with is the so relationship with other distribution which are based on Debian, like Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to figure out how we can work together while being uh, making both distros happy about their relation with the other. Another very, very important thing I've been happy about is uh, opening up membership in Debian to any kind of contribution. So that's a part which was sort of true, but not really advertised as such. So it was not clear whether doing something else than packaging was enough to become a member of the Debian project. And we have clarified that it is. That's great, because there's so many people who spend a lot of time on things other than code. Yes, absolutely. And also, I, I'm quite happy with the fact that I've been able to communicate a lot with developers with about what I've been doing. So everyone, every month, and also with daily logs and all this kind of stuff, which it's some sort of heritage to know what the DPL is about. So that's something I'm very up as well. Yeah, that's really great. So um, what's it like for you here at UDS? How has that sort of, you know, you said that one of the things that you're happiest with is working with, mm-hmm. um, you know, working with others, including Ubuntu. Um, and I think you also said you were here at UDS last year. Um, so how has that been sort of being at UDS and, and, and last year as opposed to this year? 
Okay, so um, I've been to, I think this is my third UDS. The first one has been like one year and a half, shortly, shortly after I got first ele- for the first time elected as DBL. And back then, the the relationship among Debian and Ubuntu were still a kind of a touchy topic. I mean, the fact that I was attending UDS made the news, and that's not exactly a good sign. I don't know anything about that. Okay, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> mm, I think, <laughs> right. So, um, so th- back then, I wanted to start a, di- <clears throat> a dialogue, so presenting to the Ubuntu and people and also to canonical employees why there was some tension and learning what was the, what were their their problem in dealing with Debian. So and from there we we, we worked a lot in Debian to general, generalize opening up our approach to derivatives. So not only Ubuntu but we have learned a lot in the specific case of Debian and Ubuntu so we try to opening up and creating a lot of initiatives to be more open to derivatives. So we have a front desk where derivatives can come to us and saying, "Oh, I've been trying to push my changes to Debian but I failed for this and that reason." We are doing a census of all the derivatives out there with, which is very interesting also for quality assurance I mean we have been discovering a lot of distro based on Debian which were not distributing source packages I think in very yeah. good faith because they thought I mean the packages are in Debian we don't need to distribute them ourselves but that's not exactly true so I mean all this kind of stuff is very useful work and it started from our experience with uh, dealing with Ubuntu so that's actually kind of like you know enforcement work um, has that been all friendly so we are not really doing enforcement. What we're doing is just, first of all, contacting them and telling them, okay, we think you're doing something wrong for a whole lot of packages in your archive. First, in private, because so we didn't want to you know, make the buzz that we are annoyed by that because we are not. We just want them to do the right thing. And then with a lot of those people need to work it very well. With others, we had to be a bit more vocal. I mean, uh, I had to dent something to a specific guy. Hey, I think you're not doing the right thing. And, and that in the end, it, it's working pretty well. That's great. I think that actually is similar to most of the enforcement efforts that are done elsewhere, too. Or, you know, and I, I'm, I know you were hesitant to call it enforcement work because I think you're sort of saying we make friendly contact and people fix what they're doing. So it's not really enforcement because when you say enforcement, it sounds like you're going to be suing someone. But I know that um, the organizations that have have been doing enforcement, you know, the first approach is to contact people in a friendly way. But because maybe because you're Debian also, that gives you a little bit more um, more weight. No, that, that, that's true. So we have also been thinking about doing some, uh, uh, you know, press release with a, a little bit of naming and shaming just to explain we want our derivatives to do the right thing. But I, I haven't called it enforcement also because for a lot of work, we are not the copyright uh, owners. So mm-hmm. I don't think we could really do that. Right. So, but yeah, so that's a useful contribution as well. So explaining why you should, how you should do things to, to be in good terms with licenses and with, with software in general. Have you brought any, um, any of those um, people closer to the Debian community through that process? Has there been really, you know, in addition to getting them to do the right thing, have there been any positive relationships that have come out of that? Yes, quite a lot. Actually, one of the things I'm most happy, and actually one of the reasons why I first approached the, the Ubuntu community back then, is that a lot of people who start contributing in derivatives, well, Ubuntu is a big example, of course, but there are others, uh, then realize that they can c- contribute their work to way more users if their work is also in Debian. So a lot of those people started getting involved in Debian, either as Debian maintainers, which is a technical role in which you can care only about a specific number of packages, but other as done the, the full step of becoming a member of the Debian project. So that's working very well. And I think that, you know, to fix a relationship with among communities, having a huge intersection of the two communities is very, very useful. So yeah, that is, that is part of what we've been doing and is working very well. So do you have any... Um any words of comment about uh, maybe about Debian and GNOME 
I'm going to I'm just because I'm curious and I'm, I'm the one who gets to do the interview. <laughs> sure, sure, no problem. So GNOME has been the default desktop on Debian for a, lot, for a long time now. Debian is about choice, so it's not our only desktop. We have several different desktops, but you have a default to choose. And GNOME has always been, has been that for quite a long time for us. And uh, so our policies that we try to, I mean, we have a distribution, right? And I think the role of a distribution is distributing free software. Uh, I don't think we are making a specific product. We are just taking software developed by others, being sure that it works well, that there is a good synergy among the software, and reviewing critically the releases of our own upstream. So not all the releases of our own upstream have the same quality. So we, we pick specific version and say, okay, this version is good enough for us to support it for two years or five years or whatever. So this is what I think it's the role of a distribution. I don't think the role of a distribution is uh, developing software. So there might be intersections, of course. You might have community which mixes a bit, and you have some distro-specific software you need to develop, like an installer, for instance. But beside that, we try to represent the work of upstream as faithfully as possible, and just to bring it to our users. So in that sense, I'm happy with the relationship with GNOME, but I mean, it's, it's what we're trying to do with all our upstream, not just GNOME. So what are you using? Myself, so I'm using GNOME, GNOME 3, but I'm using the fallback mode because I, I want a tiling window manager and the tiling features that are in GNOME 3 are not yet up to what I will need. So I'm using GNOME 3 in fallback mode with Awesome as a window manager. So, you know, I think with um, with what all that happened with uh, with Debian, and it's funny, I, we, were, we were laughing before because it is news that I'm at UDS this time. I think a lot of people have noticed and commented, right. um, and, and it's great, and it's part of why I'm here. Um, but do you have any sort of... I guess words of advice for for GNOME. You mean in the specific case of the relationship with Ubuntu, or in, okay? Yeah, well, and and in general. Okay, so uh, in my case, I think the the buzz was actually not really useful in getting the relationship straight, and I mean we are not entirely happy at the moment either, not on Debian side and not even on the Ubuntu side. So, uh, what I think made things improve a lot is uh, being frank about the issues and go to the other and say, okay, these are our issues. This is our point of view. This is how we see it. This is what we are asking. So what's your point of view? Which kind of problem are you are you seeing coming from us? So an example from my experience is that when I first attended UDS like one year and a half ago, um, a lot of people in Ubuntu and in, also in Canonical were not expecting that Debian was welcoming their contribution. So the, the reason why there was many people were upset back then is that there was a, a huge delta among Ubuntu and Debian, and that's the, that delta was not pushing, was not being pushed back to Debian. And they were believing that we didn't want that to happen, while in fact it was the reason of the unhappiness in the first place. So suggestion, clarity. Be, come here as you did and explain what's not, what's not good for you and ask what's not good for them. So what do you think the biggest challenges are for Debian going forward? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> the <laughs> fact, question. I think it's more than specific of Debian, it's that in general, the distro market is, is really shrinking. So I think the, the usage of free software on desktop machine is decreasing. More and more people are moving apps on this so-called uh, cloud, which have all the software freedom problem we know. But even if the, those problems didn't exist, the computation is moving away from the from our own PC. So there is a, there is a role for distribution there, but I think that numerically is decreasing, and this is challenge, challenging in general the notion of distribution. So that's a, 
a big challenge for me. Yeah, I mean, that is certainly a, a, a big challenge. Um, you know, I, I think there's all this talk about what, you know, how really like high level conversations that we have to have right now about, you know, what what is it, you know, what is a computer? How do we use it? How is it in our lives? Where do we think things will be going? And, you know, how does a desktop or a distribution fit into that? Um, you know, do you have any thoughts about that? Sort of that high level, how do we compute? And so, yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a very good question. I don't see where it is going. I know we all see the trends, and but the role of free software and all that is not clear. I mean, the defenses we've been using to protect software freedom are starting to show their weakness. So, for instance, GPL is not enough to defend ourselves from software which are not run on our, which are not distributed to us. So we have some countermeasures like AGPL, but I think they're a bit late and it's not clear how they will catch up. And also, I'm, I'm scared by stuff like a, a big corporation like Google being able to reimplement a whole software stack to, to be immune from copyleft. So these are challenges for free software in general. And Debian is deeply grounded into free software. And we are, I mean, we are suffering of these challenges on a, every day. So, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for joining. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Oh, no. Th thank you. Good luck for uh, your political <laughs> mission here. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So that was a fun interview to do. Yeah, I liked it uh, a lot. Uh, and I think that it covered a lot of topics that I'm interested in. Uh, one of the things that you pointed out to him, which I think you were correct about, was that uh, Debian's... It wasn't really auditing. I, I'm calling it auditing. But, but Debian's verification to making sure that packages are fully compliant with the licenses in question uh, is is a lot of important work, and and I think I think it's good that Debian uh, as a community is is doing that work. But uh, I, I think your comparison to enforcement is basically correct. Um, and um, and but one of the things I think Debian's able to do is by putting things in non-free. That's actually a really strong message that they can send because basically their response, if they can't come to an agreement with the developer to fix the package so that it's compliant, they have to move it to non-free, which is a really powerful action. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, you were saying before that it's sort of like a public shaming component. Yeah, I, I think, well, I think that's been a part of the, uh, the the enforcement strategy in in what I would traditionally call standard GPL enforcement. There's often a component uh, whereby the, uh, the, we say something, we say something publicly about the violator uh, that, uh, that, that, that basically makes the public aware of the violation and hopefully gets people to send letters or otherwise uh, put pressure. Well, the pressure of something moving to non-free, which means that most Debian users won't have it installed. Installing it by default is basically impossible. And all sorts of other things that happen when something moves to non-free. I think that's actually a really uh, powerful tool that Debian has. And and when you got you talked with, with Zach about derivatives uh, of De De Debian like a to and that's um and that's possible as well i, I actually uh, karen can you mute your back channel i'm sorry to to bring that up on the air but uh i i, I uh, there's so much noise i'm sorry um but yeah so my point is basically that uh i think what zach's doing is very valuable and and doing that is really important for enforcement i think you were right to call it enforcement um it's it makes it makes a big difference 
Yeah, and I wanted to call it enforcement too because I think that uh, I think that enforcement sometimes has a bad name, and that people think that all enforcement activity is simply um, is simply litigation and getting lawyers involved. But I think that traditionally hasn't been the case, and it isn't the case now, to my understanding, for matters that are you know addressed prior to you know the way things are handled before before going to court that going to court really is a, a last action that contacting people nicely um, trying to see if if they can come in com- compliance in a friendly way is actually a, ev- everyone's goal that I know of um, who's actively conducting enforcement yeah that's the default position uh, completely of uh, everybody who does not at least nonprofit enforcement for profit enforcement things like my SQL AB used to do that I'm not a fan of is different but I think I think Zach doesn't real Zach may not realize uh, I'll talk to him next time I see him about it that how close what Tebian does is to regular enforcement uh, I mean the, the the only difference is that they're contacting uh, a developer who's probably generally non-commercial developer where Whereas most other enforcement is contacted commercial companies out of compliance, but uh, but the, the the attitudes towards them are the same. They're all potential community members, and we want to treat equally community members who are doing work commercially and non-commercially. So uh, I think uh, I think it's it fits right in with with what we've done in the past. And I, and I I hadn't realized that Debian was doing that work. And and if they're if they're using the power of of threatening non-free as a way, I mean that's that's a that's a pretty big stick. Uh, I mean it's it's as big a stick as as the copyright restrictions themselves in a lot of ways because a lot of packages would really hate to be a non be moved to non-free because of a licensing issue yeah I think so I mean it's 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 a really interesting and slightly different approach that is unique to the set of tools that Debian has as opposed to you know what other copyright what what other copyright holders have or, or what copyright holders have mm-hmm so, uh, so the other thing that uh, that he said that uh, I think was a, a very uh, frank uh, assessment that uh, that uh, embarrassed me a little bit that it was true, but I think uh, he was correct that the Afero GPL was actually late in the sense that it was not copyleft available. And I, I've said publicly before that when RMS wanted to release GPL version two point two. Uh, I was among uh, a few people who talked him out of it, and he wanted to do that in 2002, and it was going to have an Afero-like uh, clause in GPL v2.2. And I wish we'd released it then. I wish that had been default GPL uh, in in 2002, uh, because I think it would have prevented a lot of the the effectively proprietorization in the cloud. And, and I'm so glad to hear other people uh, who are major leaders in, in more generalized free software projects like Debian talking about how the cloud application being non-source available is a serious issue for software freedom. Uh, and, and he really, I actually, there's another issue I want to talk about too related to that, but that's, that, that's, that, that issue stands on its own, I think is an important one that we have to pay attention to. And I'm glad that the Debian project leader is paying attention to it. Yeah, definitely. It was actually really great to be able to spend some time with him and get a sense of what, what he really does on behalf of the Debian project. And I know he said that one of his major um, tasks was to try to make it a little bit more transparent. Um, and I, I think that that's really great too. I think we can we can all learn from that. I say that as I have a um, a report, you know, a sort of a, a public report message in draft that I've been trying to to push forward for a week and just haven't had the time to do so. But um, but I think for all of us that are sort of in charge of more nonprofit um, free software you know, endeavors and organizations need to need to try to focus on that area of transparency. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Although I think I think Zach doesn't give Debian enough credit uh, that Debian has always been pretty much fully transparent. The question with Debian was always how do you find out how the decisions were made. Uh, so for example, a classic transparency thing that's that's basically true and it's publicly documented that it's true, that licensing decisions are made by the FTP masters in Debian. And that's publicly documented. If you search in the right places, you'll find the tickets where FTP masters are discussing the licensing stuff and making a decision about whether, as we were just talking about, a package is in free or non-free. Well, uh, the funny thing is, is that everybody thinks that's a lack of transparency. It's not actually a lack of transparency. It was just a lack of uh, easily accessible documentation <laughs> to it's find true. that information out. It's true, and actually, that 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 particular point is a is a real uh, source of confusion over over the years. I remember. Uh, I, I, many conversations I've had where folks believe that Debian Legal was the source of those decisions. Yeah, De Debian Legal has absolutely no authority whatsoever other than to post on its own mailing list. <laughs> so did you say you had one other point you wanted to make? Yeah, related to the Affera thing, not, I, Zach said this really quickly, but he pointed out that when a large company like Google has so many developers that any project they would rather not have as free software they can rewrite from scratch relatively easily, that that's a huge threat to software freedom because the moment that that company doesn't want to collaborate anymore or, or that a set of companies doesn't want to collaborate anymore with a free software project, that is a huge moment uh, when, uh, when you can basically lose a free software community because you can have companies say, well, we're just going to rewrite this. We're not going to participate in the community. We're going to rewrite from scratch and and we'll make it proprietary if we want to or we'll release it under a different license. We'll look at a copyleft program and say, ah, we wish that wasn't copyleft. Okay, let's just rewrite from scratch. And right. that's happening a lot now and it's very frightening for free software uh, because because uh, free software software in general used to move, move much slower than it does now. And so the ability for proprietary companies to rewrite from scratch when they have lots and lots of money and lots and lots of developers they can employ. Uh, I think we kind of got complacent on this issue because Microsoft was so bad at writing software. Uh, <laughs> that we were like, oh, well, you know, we could just take our time, write our free software and now companies that are much more tech savvy are willing to rewrite stuff from scratch uh, when they don't feel like abiding by a free software license. And that's not a violation uh, <laughs> of a copyright law uh, to rewrite something from scratch. So yeah, uh, right. Absolutely. I mean, on the on the other hand, I think that we see a lot more quick, quick popping up of new companies that um, that are relying on free software um, to get to market quickly. So I think, you know, by the same token, while, um, you know, there are efforts to rewrite a lot of stuff at the same time, there's new stuff coming all the time. Um, that's based in free and open source software. Okay. So I, I think, uh, I think the, 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 I, there was another topic I want to talk about, uh, but I think I could save it for the, uh, a later oddcast. I mean, it relates somewhat to this, but I think we have enough, uh, here for, for folks to enjoy. Um, and I, uh, I wanted to actually um, just make a clarification um, from the last episode, which was that interview with Adam Dingle. Um, Michael Dexter actually um, wrote in to say that uh, it sounded like we were suggesting that if you don't have tax exempt status from the IRS um, during the period of your application that you can't take donations um, in. Um, and the, the, and, and I, I didn't want people to think that that was the case. Um, really, what happens is that when you apply for a tax exemption, you have a period of time after you formed your nonprofit 
um, you know, during which your application will be treated retroactively. I think it's 27 months um, after formation. So if you get your application in, once you get your tax exempt status, it's as if you applied, as if you were tax exempt from day one. So people who give you donations um, can take those uh, deductions as tax, you know, as 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 have the advantage on their um, their taxes at the end of the year. Um, only if you get the tax exempt status ultimately. And so what we're saying is that a lot of people aren't willing to give donations to organizations that are in that process where they're they're not sure whether they're tax exempt or not, because at the end of the year, maybe they won't be able to take a deduction. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, they don't know. And the worst part about all of this um, long delays by the IRS is that the fiscal period has come and gone by the time, um, you know, by the time that the tax exemption comes. So most people who have donated to um, organizations that are waiting for their tax exemption, even if they do get tax, you know, their tax exemption, they won't see the benefit of it because they won't um, go back and, and look at the, the donations they made in the previous period. So I didn't want to make it sound like um, just because a, an organization was in the middle of waiting for their tax exemption that um, that the, the, the donations made to them during that time wouldn't ultimately be deductible. But you basically have to count on the fact that the organization will get their tax exemption ultimately, which maybe they won't. Yeah, and I guess I guess people could file amended returns later, but that's so much work that it's it would a total be pain. Yeah, I mean, you guys got you could go back to the fiscal year. So, for example, if you donated, say, in two thousand and eight to an organization that gets its tax exempt status this year, you probably are still within the and and we are not we are not tax accountants and cannot give you tax advice, but you're probably still <laughs> within the period of uh, of when you could file an amended return for two thousand eight, which means you could add the deduction. But unless you gave tens of thousands of dollars to the nonprofit, the, the, if you go and amend return for like a five hundred dollar donation, even say if it's a relatively large uh, individual donation. Their $500 is pretty large for a single individual to give to a nonprofit. It's rare that that even happens, um, unfortunately. Um, but uh, the even for that, you're talking about, oh, I'm going to get another $10 or $15 back from my tax in 2008 to spend the amount of work it would take to file an amended return to get $10 or $15 back. It, it, I, I doubt anybody would bother to do that. Um, I, I think I think I think Michael's point it has something to it though, which is basically a lot of people who donate don't take a tax deduction. But for example, I haven't itemized my uh, most of my life. I haven't itemized deductions in the United States. So so for our, our non-U.S. listeners, um, the way the tax benefit works for five hundred one c three status is that that when you have it you basically um, don't pay tax on the money you gave but there's a, but but that's a part of this sheet on the tax form called the deduction sheet which is called a schedule a in the form 101040 and that you also get a standard deduction as an alternative. So, so if you're itemized deductions, when you write them all down, don't add up to what the standard deduction is. You just take the standard deduction because it's going to be a higher tax deduction. Well, it's never the case for me because I don't own uh, property. A property is a classic place where you get to itemize deductions um, and other such things. Uh, because I don't have those things, I never itemize anyway. So, uh, so if even when I give to charities, which I do every year and everyone should, it's that time of year when 
you should be writing checks to your favorite charities. Uh, and when I do that, I just never end up deducting it directly because it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't get me up to the level of my, even my standard deduction anyway. So, so I think Michael's fundamental point, which is that is the tax, is the tax exemption that important and does it matter? Uh, I think that's sort of hidden in there. And I think that's true for a lot of donors. A lot of donors, they think at the time they give, oh, I'm going to take a tax deduction. But in the fact of the matter is they may or may not take that tax deduction later anyway. So it wouldn't have mattered if they gave to a charity that had 501c3 status or not. Um, I think it's more of a warm fuzzies things that people look at C3 and they say, oh, I want to give to a charity that's tax deductible. But they, that whether they do that deduction or not is actually a relatively open question. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it probably depends on the donor, but also, you know, their grants. And I guess this is rehashing what we talked about um, with Adam and in the previous episode. So I guess yeah, no need yeah. to go there again. But I just wanted to make that clear that if 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 an organization is in, a, in the process of getting its, you know, of, of applying for tax exemption, um, you still can donate to them and potentially take a deduction once they are granted um, tax exempt status. Mm -hmm. And you could donate to, I mean, you could donate to anything you want pretty much any time you want. <laughs> yeah, you, can, you, you can give money to whoever you want exam. to. It's just whether it's, yeah. you know, it's yeah. deductible or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and in the US, for example, people are used to giving to things like political campaigns and to lobbying organizations, uh, neither of which are tax deductible in the US. So if you want to support those kinds of causes, they aren't tax deductible in any event. Okay. So I think that uh, that wraps it up. Yeah, so uh, so we'll have a uh, we'll record in the same room next time. So so I actually I have a weird feeling this there, this might actually sound a little bit better because you actually have a, an audio engineer doing work on your end and I'm using the regular mic. So so once Dan does his editing, this people might like listen to this and be like, why are well, they saying it sounds so bad when in fact uh, it sounds just as good or if not better than the usual. I don't know about that because I don't I don't want uh, I don't want. Uh, uh, I don't want Mike to be credited with uh, with this recording if it sounds not so great because because I, I'm actually recording it myself on my laptop, not using him to to you know he's he's not recording it, so I don't oh, want anyone true. to think that this he he does a much better job, I swear. <laughs> Oh well, yeah, but, uh, but I mean, that's. I mean, I, I already made the point about the equipment, the, the equipment we have. I mean, it's the, the a, a fine, a fine, uh, a fine. Uh, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, craftsman. That's the word I want. A fine craftsman also needs good tools, right? Very true. And we're using we're using the 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 equivalent of the knives, the audio knives and bearskins, anyway. So, so I, I'm sure that the the best has been done with the knives and bearskins that we had. <laughs> cool. So talk to you next time. Freeze and Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of halfbakemedia.com. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. Freeze and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. Please send any feedback to Ogcast, O-G-G-C-A-S-T, at faif.us and subscribe to the RSS feed on faif.us. Freeze and Freedom.